I'd like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Philippians. This morning we will look at Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 16. I would like to begin the reading in verse 12, and I'll, I'll read on through to verse 18, but the focus of uh, the sermon this morning will be on verses 14 through 16. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, beloved, uh, this is uh, the word of God. Actually, before that, let's, let's pray together as usual. Let's pray together, friends. Uh, Father, our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We give wholehearted thanksgiving to you that you have called us to yourself, that you have given us your spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We pray, Father, that, uh, that you would restore us, that we would bring songs of thanksgiving to you in the gates of your heavenly city. We pray, Father, that you would do this good work by the power of your spirit working with your word. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, beloved, this is uh, the word of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord remains forever. These verses, uh, which we'll look at, verses uh, 14 and following, which we'll look at today and, Lord willing, next week, this concludes a larger section in this letter that began back in chapter 1. And I'll, I'll mention this again, but this section began back in chapter 1, verse 27. There, Paul said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or to put it another way, live as a citizen of heaven, live as a citizen of a heavenly city. And in this context, that meant that the Philippians were to be unified. That is much of what Paul deals with in this section. Which would be a major part of Paul's hearers working out their salvation with fear and trembling. And so to be further unified would be a part of them working out their salvation. Now here, Paul gives his hearers more detail. The main thrust in, in terms of the commandment to work out your salvation, and to be unified, he gives us more detail. The main thrust of this passage is found in the command in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now this is not to say that we can, as Christians, can never disagree. That is not what Paul is talking about. It's not that we should never disagree with each other, that we should never stand up for what is right in the church. Think about what Jesus often did with the Pharisees and the scribes. He called them at one point a brood of vipers. And he also said, how can you speak good when you are evil? 
He also said, you strain a gnat, but you swallow a camel. And so Jesus didn't hold back in terms of addressing blatant sin, even among the leaders of uh, the people of God at that time. And so avoiding, avoiding grumbling and avoiding complaining is not a call to avoid conflict at all times. Often, people will put on a happy face and call good evil and call evil good in order to do just that, to avoid conflict. That is not what Paul is talking about. Paul definitely was not one to do this. Paul, we, we know that Paul was not shy in addressing sin in the church. He was not shy about addressing heresy, addressing very serious error in the church, even around the church. But we never hear Paul grumbling. You never hear Paul complaining or arguing, murmuring. That is what you never hear uh, from the apostle. Rather, what Paul has in mind here is the kind of complaining and murmuring that the Israelites did in the wilderness. For example... Some of you are very familiar with the story of the Israelites traveling through the wilderness after they had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. The moment that they thought that they would be without water to drink after they had been redeemed by God, what did they do? They began to complain. They began to think that God had brought them out of slavery into the wilderness to kill them by thirst. That is what they started to think and that is what they started to believe and they let it be known. They grumbled. They complained. So at the root of their complaint was was the root of their complaint was a complaint against God. But instead of directing their complaints against God himself, they directed their complaints against God's representative on earth. At that time, it was Moses. Not just once did they do this, but continually. They complained to Moses. They complained about Moses. They grumbled. They complained. And so the Apostle Paul here might have in mind the kind of grumbling and complaining that takes place usually behind the scenes that is directed at leadership in the church. He might have this in mind as he's telling the whole church not to grumble and complain. Now, this kind of grumbling and murmuring is really then grumbling that is directed at God. That that is what the Israelites were doing. They were dissatisfied with God, and so they took their complaints about God to the person that was standing right in front of them, the representative of God, Moses. And so that is what they did. But God God sovereignly sets up people in authority over us in every generation. And if we find ourselves constantly complaining about them, about those authority figures, then we might have a deeper heart issue, not necessarily with them, but with God. And so... That might be what Paul is thinking about here. Now, this is, if this is part of what Paul was getting at here, then it makes sense why he follows this section up with a note about Timothy and Epaphroditus. We'll look at that, Lord willing, in the future, but Paul is in chains. He's away from the Philippians. He's sent Epaphroditus back to them. Epaphroditus brought a gift to Paul. He sent Epaphroditus back to them. And he was planning to send Timothy back to them. These are leaders in, in the church. And so 
Paul follows up this exhortation to the church, do not grumble or complain with this note about, I'm sending you leaders. Don't grumble and complain about them. It makes sense then, would it not, if that is what Paul had in mind here. In fact, he tells them to honor such men. Now is not the time to grumble and argue against with one another, and certainly now is not the time to grumble and argue about the leadership of the church, namely Timothy and or Epaphroditus. It would certainly, and so it might include this, this might be something that Paul had, had in his mind, that he had a, an inkling of that was happening in the church. But it would certainly, though, include avoiding grumbling and complaining and arguing with one another in any context. He says this, he says, in all things, do all things without grumbling or complaining. That all things is comprehensive. Everything that you do should be devoid of this kind of dissatisfied, discontented attitude with God or with whatever is happening in the church. And so our overall approach to everything we do in the church should be filled with what then? With humility. If in all things we are in humility, counting others as more significant than ourselves, everything that we do, if we're counting them more significant than ourselves, then it will be easier to not grumble, to not complain. You're dealing with someone who's more important than you. They're more significant than you. You don't have a right to complain. But that's something that you do in your heart. It's something that we do in our hearts as we're dealing with one another. We either lower people down below us or we lift them up. And so this is certainly a call upon every member of the church, leaders included, not to grumble and complain. Now think about who Jesus might have grumbled against if he were to grumble. Who would, it, who would Jesus have grumbled against or complained about? Well, it was his father. And yet he never did so. In the wilderness, during Jesus' ministry, he had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. He was tempted by the devil, and, and instead of grumbling and complaining, as the Israelites did, what did he do? He held fast to the word of life, which is what Paul tells the church to do here. He held fast to his father's commandments. He didn't complain. He didn't grumble. And therefore, he obeyed perfectly in Israel's place, in our place, in the wilderness. And that's the standard. I doubt that we'll ever find ourselves in a desert wilderness being directly tempted by the devil himself after having not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. But we will suffer. And the call is for us not to grumble or complain as we are, called to, as we are led to do this. Let us put our energy into... into what Jesus did, holding fast to the word of life, rather than complaining in whispers or even open criticisms like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Now, one of the reasons for doing this, Paul says, is that, they, that this church might be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. And this is what Jesus was. He was blameless. He was innocent. He was pure. He was undefiled. He never grumbled. He never complained. He never sinned. That is who we are to image in everything that we do. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Now, we, of course, still fight against sin. We, as children of God, we contend against the sinful flesh. 
We are in contention against the devil, not directly as Jesus was necessarily, but he is at work. He wants to bring us down. And we do sometimes grumble and complain. We argue, do we not? Perhaps even about the positions of authority in our lives. We complain about them. We grumble about them or even to them. And maybe some of those complaints are justified. But Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Why? So we don't run the risk of bringing a blemish on ourselves. And that's what we do. We think we're accomplishing a lot, do we not, when we're complaining, grumbling. Well, really all we accomplish is we bring blemish, a blemish upon ourselves. If we are constantly arguing, complaining, we tarnish the gospel. That's what we do. We bring a bad reputation upon the church, the citizens of heaven, and that is not what we are called to do. Others in the church and in the world need to see that we are pure, that we are innocent, that we are unified, that we are not prone to division, that we are not prone to this kind of thing, complaining, arguing. We want to be attractive to the world. We want to show them that there's, there's love here. There's arguing out there. There's complaining out there. There's constant turmoil out there in the world and unbelief. But here, this is to be a, a safe haven from that. How can we do that? If all we do is grumble and argue with one another. And so that's what Paul says. Uh, that's what Paul brings us up. And so what is at stake here is not our own reputation for its own sake or for our own sake. We do this for the glory of God because we are children of God. And so what we do and the manner in which we do all things reflects something of who God is or it doesn't. You see that we are children of God and as children of God, what we do in all things and the manner in which we do them shows Other people, our children, it shows other people, the world, what God is like. And and we want to show them that God is good. He's loving. He's patient. He's compassionate. He's joyful. So this is what we are called uh, to do uh, in this world. So then as children of God... Children of a God who is altogether pure, innocent, we image that purity, we image that holiness, that blamelessness in part by not grumbling. So we should listen to this exhortation. Now we know God is watching us. We want to please our Father with what we do as his children. We want to please him. We know he's watching for sure. And so we all should take this uh, to heart. But who else is watching? Who else is listening? Well, Paul mentions the world here in verse 15. This generation. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so that's the context in which this all takes place is the watching world. Now the word translated crooked here in describing this world it's the, world, it's the word where we, where we get our word scoliosis. Scoliosis, as you may well know, is a condition that causes a curvature of the spine. In the most severe cases, this leaves a person physically crooked, bent over. They're crooked because of the curvature 
of their spine. They're not straight. Now, Paul is talking about, of course, a moral crookedness here. The world has a moral scoliosis that renders it crooked at all times. Now, Moses had used these words before, long before this. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses sings a song after he had just called God's people rebellious. They were stubborn. Uh, They were rebellious against God. That's the kind of things that Moses was rebuking his people for. He then sings this song in which he calls that generation of Israelites a crooked and twisted generation. It was God's own people at that time. Now listen to the similarities there with what Paul says here. They have dealt corruptly. This is from Deuteronomy. They have dealt corruptly. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And so Paul takes the moral perversion that was found in the generations, that generation of Israelites and their rebellion against God then, and he applies it to the whole world. The whole world is like that. They're perverted, they're twisted, they're crooked, they're rebellious. For the most part, the people in the world that surround us everywhere, they are morally crooked, morally perverted. Now, if we stop to think about the kinds of awful things that people do and the kinds of morally bankrupt things that people celebrate in the world, not just that they do them, they celebrate them, they prop them up, If we stop to think about these things, it will not take us long to determine that this world, this generation of people, is in fact wicked, is in fact crooked and twisted. It was the same in Paul's day, surrounded by the Roman culture, the ungodly Roman culture. It's the same in our day. It hasn't changed. It's a crooked and twisted generation in which we live and from which we were taken out of. There is a spiritual darkness, a moral blackness that envelops all things in this world, and it will be this way until the day of Christ. And he mentions that day in verse 16. And it is against this black darkness of moral and spiritual perversion that you, friends, the church, it's against that blackness, that darkness, crookedness, pervertedness, it's against that backdrop that you shine all the brighter. You shine as lights in the world. Like the stars that shine in the night sky, you shine in a similar fashion in the world. Like the night sky filled with stars, the darkness around those stars is vast. Is it not? There may be many stars, but the the blackness surrounding those stars has the advantage. But it's against that blackness that those stars shine all the brighter, and that is who you are in this world. If we look up at the sky, we know that the stars shine bright against the the darkness of the night. The darkness seems to cover it completely, but it doesn't cover everything. It's a dark night sky that we look up into, but it doesn't cover everything. There are points where that blackness cannot penetrate. Stars, that's you. There are points where the perversion, the crookedness, the twistedness in the world won't get through because you are no longer part of that. You are a child of God. You are children of God. 
You shine like stars in the sky as you do all things without grumbling or complaining, as you listen to the words of God coming into your ears. What we see here is that your light shines all the brighter as you hold fast to the word of life, holding fast to God's word. As we humbly put our energy into this as Christians, instead of arguing and grumbling, right, which would dim our light, instead of arguing and grumbling and putting our energy into holding fast the word of God and loving our neighbor, we shine all the brighter. Now, Paul wanted to see this happen so that he could be proud of his work as minister of the gospel. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And so Paul likens his ministry of the gospel to running in a race or working, running and laboring. We do these things, running and laboring, for a reason. People do these things for a purpose. We run to finish the race. The, the runners in Paul's day were part of uh, the contest, the, the running contest that people took part in. And they did that to win the race, to finish the race and to win it. And so we run to finish the, way, to race, the race, to win a prize. We work, we labor for food. We work to create and provide This was the goal of Paul's ministry then. Paul's working, he's running, he's laboring. What is his goal? What's he after? That the children of God whom Paul served would be all the more ready to meet Christ on the last day. On the day of Christ, I may be proud. Proud of what? That the people he preached to listened, (laughs) listened to the word of God. That they were all the more prepared to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the goal, that was the goal of Paul's ministry, his toiling, his laboring. That the people of God would actually listen to the words of God and shave off the dross of sin, shave off that tendency to grumble, to complain, to take our complaints out into the open, to murmur behind the scenes. That we would do away with that and be all the more ready to meet our Lord Jesus on, on the last day. That is something to be proud of, Paul says. That's what he's after. That his congregants, the people that he preached to, would obey the gospel. That they did, in fact, shine brighter and brighter in the darkness of this age. That they did, in fact, do all things without grumbling. That's, of course, a call upon every single person, the preacher included, leaders of the church included. That we would shine brighter and brighter until Jesus comes. Now, of course, God gets the glory for all of this. Paul knew this. Paul, as... As Paul knew this, as children of God, we bring glory to God. As his children, all that we do brings him glory. At least all that we do in righteousness, our good works, they bring him glory. And reliance on the grace of God, everything we do makes him look good all the more. And Paul had just said, it is God who works in us, and therefore he gets the glory. If God is working, then it's once we're done, and once he's done, he gets the glory in his finished work. At the same time, though, God does this work through the ministry of the gospel. And so he uses people. He uses broken people to build up the church, to make them more like Christ. And Paul was one of these people. And he did not want to see his laboring go to waste. He did not want to see all of his blood, sweat, and tears be wasted by hearing about later that the people to whom he ministered or 
continuing to be divided, to, to be complaining and arguing with one another. No, he wanted to see them uh, unified. Now lastly, friends, whose light shone the brightest in this world? Well, it was the light of Christ. As John said, the gospel writer, the light shines in the world and the darkness has not overcome it. And how did Jesus shine? When Jesus was hanging on a cross, he was in the midst of a morally crooked and perverted generation of Israelites. He was surrounded by them. He was put there by them. He was surrounded by a morally crooked and perverted generation of Israelites, unbelieving Jews. He was also in the midst of morally crooked and, a morally crooked and perverted generation of people from the world, the Romans, lusted after this thing. They lusted after seeing the cross as a symbol of their power being used to put down other claims to power. And so they, they could show their power. They lusted after the, that type of thing. They gloried in it. That's who Jesus was surrounded by. Crooked and perverted generation of people. In the middle of this darkness, in fact, as he was being overwhelmed by that darkness on the cross, did Jesus grumble? Did he complain? Did he argue with his father? No, in fact, for the most part, he was silent. He didn't say anything. He was like a lamb, silent before its shearers. But when he did speak, what did he say? He said things like this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is who we are to take our cue from. When we want to shine as lights in the world and we are prone to argue, to grumble, to complain, we think about what Jesus did. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do.